Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to this edition of All Options Considered. I'm Tanvir Sandhu, Chief Global Derivative Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg. On this episode, I will be joined by Nancy Davis, founder of Quadratic Capital Management, to discuss the latest themes from the volatility markets. For reference, this is being recorded on the day of the July 2023 ECB meeting and one day after the FOMC meeting. So both central banks have left the optionality of another hike, but the autopilot mode of rate hikes has now been switched off. It's conditional on the incoming data. So the data will have the last word on the precise peak in rates. This can see the market being more sensitive to data given the non-committal guidance and support realized volatility around key data releases. There wasn't particularly much change to the FMC policy statement, but Chairman Powell was dovish at the press conference, suggesting a potential skip at the September meeting conditional on the inflation data. For the ECB, it's finely balanced, whether it's the final hike, survey data and credit conditions are weakening, but core inflation remains sticky and the two inflation releases before the September meeting will decide the next move. So Nancy, great to have you on. Thanks for having me. So rates fall has faded from cycle highs as the near term left tail risks fade after the banking stress episode and the right tail of the rates distribution narrows as we are in the zone of the end of the hike cycle. And we've been of the view that the distortions in the rates volatility surface will take time to fully normalize given the fluid probabilities around the economic outcomes. But this process looks set to continue for the rest of the year as the policy rates distribution narrows. So what do you make of it? Well, I do think um, most investors, since your coverage is global, should understand that the Fed's balance sheet, about a third of the Fed's balance sheet, which is still over $8 trillion, is U.S. mortgages. And U.S. mortgages, because U.S. homeowners have the option, they are along the option to prepay their loan, most people who own things like the Bloomberg Ag Index, which is the benchmark core fixed income, a third of that index is mortgages. And now that we have the Fed doing, you know, coming, you know, it's arguable whether they are at the end of their rate hike or just pausing or going to be hiking again in September, but it's neither here nor there. They are doing quantitative tightening and they're not buying mortgages anymore. So I think investors really should be focused on U.S. interest rate volatility in particular, because I think that has gotten incredibly cheap. Um, also, the vol curve is very downward sloping, um, whereas if you look at equity markets, typically equity markets around the world, the vol curves are upward sloping, meaning we don't know what's going to happen in the future, so you pay a premium to buy options longer dated uh, because vol is usually priced higher than short dated options. In the rates market, it's actually the opposite. The vol curve is substantially downward sloping. And to your point, it's fallen substantially this year. It spiked around Silicon Valley Bank um, when correlations increased and volatility increased across most asset classes. But now it's really fallen quite a bit. 
And I think um, people should really be focused specifically on U.S. interest rate volatility because of that that optionality that's in most people's bond portfolios, which is they're actually short fixed income volatility because of any place they own U.S. mortgages. Right. Just to unpack that a little. So the short vol exposure in the ag index is via the mortgage component that you mentioned. So essentially, if interest rates go down, a mortgage security goes up in price, but by less of an extent when the mortgage security goes down in price when rates go up. So essentially, the homeowner has the option to prepay. So when rates go down, the homeowner will refinance at that lower rate. Whereas if rates go up, the homeowner wouldn't refinance, assuming the person is is rational, which creates this so-called negative convexity behavior. Yes, and I think the thing to keep in mind for for you know your listeners is that before the Fed embarked on their quantitative easing, you know, bond buying program, and you know, right after the financial crisis, it was normal for mortgage participants in the United States to hedge that negative convexity. That was just a normal cost of doing business if you were a mortgage investor that you would buy US dollar rate swaption volatility just to hedge that prepayment risk because modeling a mortgage, you're modeling a short option. You're modeling a consumer's behavior about when they prepay, how much they prepay. And you know, if you look at even uh, Silicon Valley's um, statement, if you look up their 10Q, you can see in the 10Q that because interest rates moved higher faster than the market was expecting, we've just had one of the fastest tightening cycles in, in history, their mortgage duration extended because homeowners prepaid less than what they had modeled. And I think that's the the key point uh, that I'd like to make on this podcast is that the big thing that most investors have is they're actually short fixed income volatility in their bond portfolio, especially any place that they own U.S. bonds like the ag index. And a third of that index is short vol. It's short fixed income vol because of the mortgage exposure. What's interesting at the moment in the swaption space, so the rates volatility space, is the skew where, you know, we're looking at the difference between vol on high yields versus lower yields. And it can be useful to assess the market asymmetry and shifts in market sentiment. So what we've seen lately is, you know, the fading of the left air risks has seen a bounce in the payer skew vol, particularly further out the curve. The front end is very much in favor of lower yields with the skew bid for receivers over payers. Further out the yield curve, the skews on, you know, the 10-year, 30-year tails are now positive, implying that the distribution of outcomes is for higher yields at the back end of the yield curve. Well, I would expect those to flatten over time as the effects of policy tightening takes a greater hold, but it's highlighting the balance of risks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also the vol curve being so downward sloping, just generally, you know, the term structure of vol is very attractive. Um, so you can buy very, uh, you know, long dated options in the interest rate markets that have pretty, pretty benign carry um, and roll up the vol curve, which is really, I think, a fabulous thing for investors as a, as a, as a long term asset allocator. You want things that are in your portfolio that are not correlated with everything else that help diversify risk. And I think taking advantage of the backwardation 
in uh, the U.S. interest rate volatility markets is sort of, to me, like a bit of a no-brainer. And I don't know why more people don't do it. Well, that's always been the issue with vol, right? Paying up for vol where you're paying FITA. But given the roll down, it makes it more interesting. Absolutely. And a lot of people are doing that on the equity where you have, you know, the vol curve is actually the opposite. It's usually upward sloping. So it's, uh, you know, you have that contango. So you have the theta that you pay if you're long vol in equities, plus the roll down is is painful because you're rolling down uh, the vol curve. Um, so going from a paying up for longer dated vega, whereas in the rates market, it's the opposite. So regarding equity vol, I mean, we've seen a re-risking over the last couple of months and the market being chased higher. And that's crushed equity vol and protection against the pullback is historically pricing low, which should be considered. So if we look at the VIX, which may look optically low, but the premium when compared to realized volatility isn't far off long-term averages. Uh, the one-month realized vol on the S&P is around 8 vol. The 10-day vol is about 6. And the fall in realized vol will increase the leverage of strategies that control for vols. So risk control funds have increased their exposure by increasing their leverage as volatility declines. What opportunities are you seeing in equity vol? You know, I think there's a lot of dispersion within the sectors as well. Um, So certain, um, obviously, uh, certain sectors have much more expensive volatility when you're looking overall at things like, you know, the VIX is a very popular index because it trades a lot. It's a listed market. It's easy to access that market, whereas other markets, other anything that has an options market has a vol market, and a lot of the problem that investors have is accessing those markets because things like fixed income markets are generally not accessible um, just in a single QSA product, um, and that that's part of the reason we created um, you know our ETF set quadratic is to give access to those markets. But I would say there there's a lot of dispersion under the surface. I think. Um, Credit volatility is much more expensive than equity volatility um, at the moment. But I think the problem with equity volatility is it's very much a timing game because you have very, very negative carry and the vol curve works against you, which is why I feel like everybody's so focused on equity vol and they're missing, you know, they're missing the gorilla in their portfolio, which is most people, you know, going back to the Bloomberg Ag Index, most people are actually short fixed income volatility in their bond portfolio. And so I think the focus has wrongly shifted from the financial crisis. Everybody's kind of looking at what happened in 2008. And now with policy rates in the U.S. that you know, the Fed just hiked again yesterday, we might be getting another hike potentially in September. But I think fixed income vol is really the thing that folks should be looking at because that's where the risk is. And if they don't own fixed income vol in their portfolio, they're naturally short it. So you're running a ETF iVol that profits from rates vol and inflation expectations. So effectively, you're providing a hedge against rates vol to those without access to the OTC space. Yeah, no, we, um, we decided it was very important to give access to investors, to give them choices, to give them an instrument that is instead of only having negative convexity in their bond portfolio to have a positive convexity strategy. Um, so our fund is a long-only fund. It's conservative fund. It's um, about 86% U.S. Treasuries 
and then we own fully funded, long-dated interest rate options. And to your point, a lot of investors, um, you know, do not have uh, the access to this market. I feel like if you look back, um, you know, back when the mortgage market started, you know, it had to be QCIPT, right? For many years, it was not investable. Now everybody owns mortgages, even in the most, uh, the largest and most traded indices. But having a product that gives you a positive convexity and long interest rate volatility, I think is incredibly important for diversification. And I think the week of Silicon Valley Bank really showcased Ival and how different it is because it's cherry picking to look at that week, but Ival was up approximately 15% in a week, whereas many other, I'd say more traditional uh, diversifying strategies, like I know you and I have talked about CTAs and other things, actually did not make money. So I think it's very important to have things that are in your portfolio that don't look like everything else. I'll be interested to know the main challenges in setting up an ETF as it's a highly competitive space. You need wealth management firms to allow you on their platforms. What were the challenges around the approval process? Yeah, it's definitely been... Um, uh, the ETF space is the biggest oligopoly in the world. Um, there are a couple of very large firms who dominate um, ETFs, and it's very hard um, to get uh, approval at these platforms because, um, because it is such an oligopoly industry. I'd say in the world of finance, I think the ETF space is the most competitive and the hardest to compete in. But I think you know, we've really innovated. I think a lot of people in asset management do similar things. You know, they take a benchmark and they do plus or minus, you know, a little bit off the benchmark and there's very little innovation. And I think the fact that, you know, you can really see with our, our fund being, you know, uh, the growth that we've had, the success that we've had in the, um, you know, we've listed it, it's been listed um, for over four years now. Um, it pays out 30 basis points every single month in monthly distributions, 30 bips a month. Um, and I think, you know, it's not approved everywhere. We've definitely still struggled with platform approvals. Um, a lot of it, sadly, in wealth management is, um, is pay for play. Um, so the wealth management firms want, you know, money <laughs> up front. Uh, to be onboarded, and it's harder as a smaller firm when you're competing with, you know, say, uh, you know, a State Street or a Vanguard um, to be able to pay those millions of dollars of fees up front just to get access. So we're a smaller player, really differentiated player, but I think it speaks to the product development and the innovation on the success that we have had. Just be careful of your bond portfolios and make sure you understand you know, what you own. And um, I think it's a, a very important, especially with short duration strategies, to know what percent of that, if you're not taking a lot of rate risk, you could be adding a lot of credit spread or mortgage, which is short vol risk. Absolutely. Understand your risk. Appreciate you joining on this month's episode of All Options Considered. My pleasure. Thank you. I love the, the name of your podcast. It's perfect because People really need to explore all options and understand. <laughs> we'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks. 